Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this week's episode, we're going to be looking at Clark Ashton Smith's story, The Seven Gearses. Before we get into that, though, yeah, let's talk about what we did this week. We had a big trip, <laughs> a big excursion. An expedition, one might say. Yeah, yes. it sure was. So, yeah, a good friend of the good friend, C.J. Roma, arranged for us to go down to London and do a, a, a number of odd things. Unfortunately, we missed the first odd thing. Yeah, that was that potential to be the oddest thing. Yeah, so... Um, I, I blame TFL, <laughs> fucking website and its wrong postcodes. But, yeah, we had been scheduled to go down and um, meet a chap called David Farrant, who, if you're at all interested in Fortiana, the name Ray, may ring a bell, as the person who investigated the Highgate vampire in the early 70s. Well, more than just investigated, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Almost did hand-to-hand combat with it. Yes. Uh, he is a real-life Call of Cthulhu investigator. Well, he is, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, in, a, in an earlier form almost yes um <laughs> yeah. yeah so unfortunately we arrived a little too late for that but we did uh make our way to highgate cemetery and we had a tour yeah i think scott wrote more, um, as many notes to build about well, 10 scenarios i think <laughs> yeah there's plenty of all the way around plenty Oops. of inspiration there i think it was fantastic because we had an excellent tour guide who took us around who knew I mean, not only a lot about the, the Western Cemetery. I mean, for those who don't know, Highgate is split into two cemeteries, the East Cemetery and the West Cemetery. And we did our tour of the West Cemetery, which is the old, wild, overgrown, slightly subsided one. The dangerous one. Yes. Yeah. And he knew not only the history of the you know, the cemetery, he knew a lot about Victorian burial customs uh, and... Symbology of gravestones. Yeah, yeah, and Victorian history in general. I can't believe how many notes I took. <laughs> Highgate Cemetery is in North London and is famous for uh, having the grave of Karl Marx, among others, in there. We weren't in that side. That was in the other side of the road. We then undertook another trip across London by various means of transport. <laughs> Inclu- chiefly- including by Aki. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been quicker. It would have <laughs> been a lot quicker. Yeah, it would have saved my feet. <laughs> All the way down to the SPR. Now, what is the SPR? The Society for Psychical Research. Mm-hmm. Not those words that you see normally on top of a Roman uh, standard. Yeah, it's, it's a cue short of that. There now, we, we walked up and down this street a couple of times before we found it. I like to sort of think that it didn't actually exist on the first <laughs> couple of times we passed it. We willed it into being. Yes. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a house, it was a torpor. And there it was. It, this is a society which was formed in Victorian times in about 1860, am I right? I should okay. know that. Yeah, I shan't pin that down. <laughs> but it, let's just say in Victorian times, that gives us a nice room for error. One of the most famous presidents of the SPR is perhaps Arthur James Balfour, Prime Minister of Britain uh, at the turn of the, the 19th to 20th century. Apparently, the <laughs> correspondence address for at least a, a little while was 10 Downing Street. <laughs> I love that snippet. I can't remember whether it was someone at the SPR who said it or CJ, that um, apparently Balfour prioritised SPR correspondence over official government correspondence. If something from the SPR came across his desk, that was it. That was what he was reading that day. <laughs> well, it's just obviously it was more important. <laughs> 
So uh, this is a body that has researched all sorts of psychic phenomena, poltergeist ghosts and so on. And as we mentioned Theosophy last time, they were also the people that looked into and kind of debunked uh, Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical uh, Society and the, the mystical kind of letters that she was apparently getting from these spiritual elders. That was kind of in the, yeah, the latter part of the 19th century. And yes, all of this was very, very inspirational again and may result in some interesting work. And a decent part of book envy on my part because, by God, their bookshelves were amazing. Yeah, Matt, for one, I did notice it was sat there in one of the chairs just drooling (laughs) at the lovely wooden bookcases that they'd got, which uh, apparently they'd had for for a very long time and had moved from the various premises with them and had to be taken apart and reconstructed by cabinet makers. They did have a very good collection of occult tomes. What I really wanted to do was just get a catalogue of all the titles. Uh, So every time in a Call of Cthulhu game when they say, oh, what books are on the shelves? And you're like, you can't just cut to the necronomicon i mean that's a bit crass so you have to sort of name you know there's the golden bow and there's and you name a few others and you kind of run out i mean if you got this list you wouldn't run out so what time is it now scott let me guess it's time for the lovecraftian word of the um and now the lovecraftian word of the week and what's the word this week, Matt? This is knighted without a K. I always keep thinking there should be a K in front of this. Knigets. Yeah, that too. <laughs> it's an adjective meaning darkened, cloaked, or surrounded by darkness, or just dark. There's a theme there, isn't there? Yeah, very black. <laughs> but this is... A, a peculiarly Lovecraftian way, I think, of saying dark. I mean, why say dark when you could say knighted? Yeah, he's not even one to use more words and not even to just be verbose for the sake of it. He just puts in more syllables that he can. <laughs> and yeah, I, I'm not sure I've really seen this word too much outside Lovecraft. But Lovecraft himself used it quite a lot. I mean, he used it some 23 times in his fiction. It does sound cooler than just saying dark. Yeah. Anyway, let's take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word knighted. From the horror at Red Hook. But at the time it was all horribly real, and nothing can ever efface the memory of those knighted crypts, those titan arcades, and those half-formed shapes of hell that strode gigantically in silence, holding half-eaten things, whose still-surviving portions screamed for mercy, or laughed with madness. And from At the Mountains of Madness. All this flashed in unison through the thoughts of Danforth and me as we looked from those headless, slime-coated shapes to the loathsome palimpsest sculptures and the diabolical dot groups of fresh slime on the wall beside them. Looked and understood what must have triumphed and survived down there in the Cyclopean water city of that knighted, penguin-fringed abyss, whence even now came a sinister, curling mist, which had begun to belch pallidly as if in answer to Danforth's hysterical scream. I think before we move on, we should just take a moment to celebrate a sentence that contains the phrases belch pallidly and penguin-fringed abyss. 
If I ever start a rock group, it's going to be called Penguin Fringed Abyss. <laughs> and the first album will be called The Pallid Belch. <laughs> and from The Whisperer in Darkness. To shake off the maddening and wearying limitations of time and space and natural law. To be linked with the vast outside. To come close to the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate. Surely such a thing was worth the risk of one's life, soul and sanity. Let's move on to the background of the story, The Seven Gearses. So this story was first published in the October 1934 issue of Weird Tales. But like most of Smith's work, it's been republished in various collections over the years. I think Smith's work has appeared in so many different collections under different names that, you know, if you're going back and picking up old paperbacks, it's really easy to buy the same stories over and over again, packaged in different ways. As I recently discovered with The Last Feast of the Harlequin. Yes. <laughs> Different author, but hey. Um, but yeah, I mean, recently Nightshade Books put out a series of the complete fantasies of, of Clark Ashton Smith. And those are available in paperback and ebook at the moment. I think the hardcovers were all limited edition. And The Seven Gears in particular appears in the fifth volume, which is called The Last Hieroglyph. If you want to read it free of charge, though, it's also on the Eldritch Dark website. So this story is set in the realm of Hyperborea. Now, what is that? It's, uh, it's Greenland, isn't it? It, it? When you read it, it just feels like a, a far-off, you know, mystical fantasy land. But it is got has got some root in, in the real world, perhaps. You know, it, is, it can be viewed as a, an ancient, like Matt says, kind of Greenland, Iceland, now lost, ice-locked in the frozen north somewhere. Yeah, and the name comes out of Greek mythology, um, particularly meaning the land beyond the north wind. I am Boreas being the god of the north wind. And in these stories, we see them filled with lush jungles, dinosaurs, alien gods and, and weird creatures. So what with the greenhouse effect and you know the, the imminent arrival of Jurassic Park in the real world, then we'll be heading back for this kind of thing, you know, lush, lush jungles. Well, it does make mention that quite... Um not offhandedly, but just that dinosaurs are quite a common occurrence in Hyperborea. <laughs> so they yeah. don't pay any attention to them. Yeah, it's just dinosaur. Yeah. yeah, yes, we'll see. One of the characters is wandering around dressed in dinosaur leather. But even though this is a prehistoric civilization, I mean, it's not a completely primitive one. I mean, the, uh, the humans still live in cities. They have a civilization. Um, and, yeah, it looks like the technological level is, is you know, at least Iron Age. I mean, some of the weaponry they talk about using seems downright medieval at times. So if this is all new to you, if you think of Conan the Barbarian, I think we're all familiar with that. This Krom. is a similar... What? Crom! Indeed. Uh, this, is a, this is a very similar setting. This is Hyperborea. And, and what was Conan set in, Scott? Well, that was the Hyborian Age, which was sort of this this lost age or forgotten age of, of mankind's development. A sort of fantasy Europe and Middle East, and by well, actually Africa in places as well. You take out the P. Yeah. Hyperborean. Hyperborean. That per makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. The Hyperborean world in Clark Ashton Smith's stories is imperiled by this impending ice age. And certainly the idea is by the time we get round to the modern day, this is all buried under layers of ice. Well, except, as Paul just mentioned, not for long. 
But Smith wrote 11 stories set in the Hyperborean cycle. And you know, a lot of the things that, that, as I mentioned before, that we see in the mythos come specifically from these stories, like Sartokua, a few other deities we're going to encounter in this story, and uh, the wizard Ibon in his notorious book. And now a synopsis of The Seven Gearses. Well, before we get into this, how do we pronounce Gears? Obviously, because of the way that Smith has pluralised it here, it's not the correct pluralisation as we'd use it today. Uh, but well, you say we'd use it today, <laughs> Scott. I don't think we would use it, would we? There um, is one instance where I found that it has been used when anyone plays Mage the Awakening because there is a, a fate spell in there called Gears. That's the <laughs> only time I've heard it used. But it's it's a word that comes from uh, apparently either Irish or Scots Gaelic. The pronunciation of it technically apparently should be either gish or gesh, and the pluralisation would be more along the lines of gisher. But uh, because of the way that Smith has spelt it here, that doesn't really work. So I'm actually more inclined to pronounce it gishers, even though that is technically incorrect. You know, the first time I approached it, Paul's looking rather triumphant. <laughs> Scott wants to pronounce a word incorrectly. <laughs> this is a victory for all right-thinking people. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was actually thinking back to the first time I ever looked at this um, the story in um, in the collection I've got, and knowing nothing about it, I thought it was seven geeses. I thought it was about seven birds. That was really, honestly, my first thing. So it's like the, the twelve days of Christmas and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I just know. let me tell you, ge- geese don't go quack. <laughs> no, they, geese have fucking terrifying mouths. If you ever see a stop yep. motion picture of those things open, I've it's seen a one thing close of up. Yes, <laughs> but I know I've asked you this before, Matt. But have you ever been tested for dyslexia? The what now? <laughs> <laughs> it looks like geese's. It I, really does. I, I think the contrast setting on your book is wrong. I think. <laughs> I think we need to go back to the original source for this this word, though, which is, of course, the uh, the 1978 Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Player's Handbook. Well, there's a um, tome. Indeed, I have I have a hardback copy in my hands right here. It smells. It smells of uh, the early it's... 1980s. <laughs> I thought you were going to say smells of gamer. <laughs> well, not early 1980s teenage gamer. And. On page 84, there's a sixth-level magic user spell called Geese, Geesh, Gesh, Geas, right? Geas. It's an enchantment or charm of sixth level. All you have to do is touch someone. Takes four segments to cast and just requires a verbal component. And, yes, basically it puts somebody under something similar, the effects are something similar to a, a wish spell in its description. So uh, you you kind of cast it on somebody and say what you want them to do. Uh, it does say they, while a gears cannot compel a creature to kill itself or to perform acts which are likely to result in certain death, it can cause almost any other course of action. I think we know then that most of the NPCs or most of the other characters in the story then have obviously been, uh, not read that rule book because only one of them touches him. <laughs> but I do get the impression that this is probably the story that inspired Gary Gygax to put that spell in D&D. Oh, I would think so. 
In fact, Smith's use of the word uh, gears when he submitted it to Weird Tales did lead to Farnsworth Wright actually going out and speaking to dictionary compilers about uh, you know whether or not this was a real word. It probably didn't appear in our dictionaries until until the story is a result. If anyone knows any better, you know, please do correct me on that. Actually, Farnsworth Wright did originally reject the story for that re- well, partly for that reason. He only accepted it the second time round. In fact, he, he wrote off to Smith and basically said, oh, yeah, actually, I've been thinking about this and researching the word gears and so on. And yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, send, send it to me again. Well, a lot of his stuff was originally uh, rejected and then had to, um, then rewritten because it contained a lot more erotic content. Hmm. So a lot of the original manuscripts, to say that, mentioned previously were destroyed apparently contained a lot more raunchy material but because smith was so reluctant to type up anything again after um after originally writing it up the first time for submission um when they did the later collected editions that's why he didn't bother putting them back in huh wow chicka wow wow our story begins thus the lord ralibar vuz high magistrate of camorium and third cousin to king homquat had gone forth with six and twenty of his most valorous retainers in quest of such game as was afforded by the black Iglophian mountains, leaving to lesser sportsmen the great sloths and vampire bats of the intermediate jungle, as well as the small but noxious dinosauria. Ralabar Vuz and his followers had pushed rapidly ahead and had covered the distance between the Hyperborean capital and their objective in a day's march. That sounds like a bunch of PCs, doesn't it? <laughs> People go around hunting sloths. Haven't they learnt from your example, Paul? Giant sloths? Yeah. <laughs> He's I mean, a giant sloth. Kill a man in one slow swoop. <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 Paul's character in um, Beyond, Beyond the, the Mountains of Madness. Madness, it was almost killed while hunting a sloth when it fell from a tree and eviscerated him on the way down. In an improvised additional scene, yes, <laughs> in, uh, in, in South America, I think, or the... It, it did lead to the rest of us coming up with inventive ways to try and torment him with the stuffed sloth that on a high seas uh, storm, he woke up in the middle of the night as this sloth poised with claws above him <laughs> falls on top of him and gives him about a one point sand loss, I believe. Oh, yeah, I think so. And, <laughs> and you guys had um, caught the sloth and, and stuffed it. Yeah, yeah. And oddly enough, there is a soft toy sat right behind Paul now to this day. Wasn't your character a taxidermist or something, Scott? Yes, I seem to remember that one of them was, yeah. But bathing in sardine oil when he wasn't doing that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, kept his skin supple. <laughs> we also had a mention of the capital city of Hyperborea there, Camorium. And if you remember back to that reading we gave from The Whisper in Darkness, the Lovecraft makes a reference to uh, the priest Clark Ashton talking about the Camorium myth cycle and Sartholkia's place in it. So, you know, this is, this is Lovecraft's little nod to the, the Hyperborean stories. And I like the curious, archaic turns of phrase that he uses. Not 26 retainers. But six and 20, it's like four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. It's that mm-hmm. kind of old-fashioned language that adds flavour to all of this. Always gives you a nod to say what might happen to the poor sods going up the mountain. <laughs> and you said it sounds like a role-playing party, but actually it's like one PC and a whole horde of henchmen. Because <laughs> these 26 dudes, they've got like, they're tooled up. They really are. Well, yeah, let me just read this passage out, because this defines the fact that this is a role-playing party. 
The whole party was variously studded with auxiliary knives, throwing darts, two-handed scimitars, maces, bodkins, and saw-toothed axes. The men were all clad in jerkins and hose of dinosaur leather, and were shod with brazen-spiked buskins. Ralabarvus himself wore a light suiting of copper chainmail, which, flexible as cloth, in no wise impeded his movements. In addition, he carried a buckler of mammoth hide, with a long bronze spike in its centre that could be used as a thrusting sword. And, being a man of huge stature and strength, his shoulders and baldric were hung with a whole arsenal of weaponries. So these things, they're clearly going to be like plus one, plus two armour. Mm. They've got dinosaur leather armaments. He's got a mammoth hide buckler. It's like a shield, right? Yeah, I mean, he's a butler the first time he pronounced it. <laughs> he's just had a guy carrying all these armaments because he's got so bloody many of them. They're really well armed. So this guy's clearly pretty high level, this Rullabar Vuz. Well, and of course, the reason they're so well armed is they're going off hunting Vormies. And Vormies are intelligent creatures. These sort of bestial subhuman things, we'll go into them a little bit later on. Is it Vormi or Vormis? Uh, Vormis is the plural, Vormi is the singular. Okay, so I got a little concerned with the descriptions of the Vormis. We get this description of them being a downgraded tribe of Aborigines. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, on the whole, Smith tends to avoid a lot of the sometimes uncomfortably racist description that creeps into both Howard's and, and Lovecraft's work. But, I mean, this is probably the closest he came. It does have uncomfortable echoes of some of Lovecraft's more virulent moments. There is another little bit about them in the story as well, which I, I quite liked, which was... Vormies, who were popularly believed to be the offspring of women and certain atrocious creatures that had come forth in primal days from a tenebrous cavern world in the bowels of Vormihadrith. And that almost makes it sound like, you know, they, they're maybe even crossbred with the spawn of Aboth. Or I something. was just thinking the same thing. Right. Yeah. But also, I, I'm, I'm slightly bemused by this, that it's the offspring of women in certain atrocious creatures. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the women of Hyperborea would quite happily sleep with these creatures that came out from the abyss. But, yeah, the men, you know, obviously they have standards. <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> and these beings originally came from the Testament of Athamas, uh, another story by Clark Ashton Smith. Yep, another one from the Hyperborean cycle. So they're wandering around this ancient dormant volcano called Vormithadrath. It's riddled with caves. Dormant so, with four craters. It's not just a normal volcano. It's got four craters. Yeah. But they're still struggling to find a way in. They're struggling to find any trace of the Vormies in general. On the whole, I like the story, but there are certain problems with it. And one of the things that really put me off on the first reading is that this wandering around trying to find a way into the volcano and waiting for something to happen. Sure, there's the cool descriptions of the dinosaur leather and stuff like that, but this is like a quarter of the story where nothing is really happening. And there's a line in there which just really jumped out to me, which was, he was wasting too much time in an exploration idle and quite foreign to the real business of the day, which just seemed to be a perfect description for what was going on in the bloody story. I thought that was a quote that a reviewer had written, Scott, when, <laughs> when I saw that you had noted that. I didn't, I didn't realise that was actually from the story. Oh, yes. Oh, OK. You say the first quarter of the story is a bit 
not so engaging sky actually i thought that was the best bit i really liked all the description and uh, of him kind of because i could really visualize him you know with all these guys going around and then there's the hero ralebar vuz you know heading up the mountain on his own and 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 they're wandering around being pelted with stones and offal. <laughs> it's, it's like the scene from um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, when they're, they're being assailed by the, the castle. Yes. Yeah, so the Vormice are, are throwing stuff at them. And in the distance, Ralabavu's spies a wisp of smoke. And he, this kind of catches his eye because the, the Vormice don't use fire. They're, they're a pretty primitive lot. He looks for a way to make it up to where this smoke is coming from. And it's it's a treacherous journey up there. He has to scale rock faces and so on to get yeah, up there. bits of lava and stuff like that. And um, Flows of obsidian. That yeah. was a nice description. <laughs> yeah, as Ralebavos gets closer, you know, he finally does get closer. And he hears voices. He hears a number of voices, one of which is human and, and you know, uses accents he can recognise. And the other of which... He can't place it all. And there's a nice bit of description here, which is, They affected his ears in a most unpleasant fashion, suggesting by turns the hum of great insects, the murmurs of fire and water, and the rasping of metal. And if I heard a voice like that, it would scare the shit out of me. You're not Ralabar Vuz! <laughs> Vuz, who does act when, when he speaks slightly uh, further on from this, Again, does have the impression of wearing a pith helmet and go, What ho, you? I am a big game hunter in deepest, darkest Africa. I'm a very, very stereotypical representation of colonialism. Because that's really how it reads. It does. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm now finding it impossible to imagine him without an upper class English accent <laughs> and a big handlebar moustache. <laughs> Ralabarvus has stumbled across something entirely unwholesome. He has stumbled across a summoning that is going on, uh, conducted by a sorcerer by the name of Esdegor, who apparently was, was casting a most promising and important evocation. At the time when the stars were right. Hmm. It's kind of intriguing what this dude was doing, because he was summoning up something... And yeah, our hero kind of lumbers over the ridge. <laughs> Hello. And he's just, he's just like, you know, imagine he's been there all day and all night, maybe chanting and, and, and getting his ritual already. And then just at the moment, this random, you know, fifth level fighter comes wandering over the, the, the cliff face. Hello. Oh, you messed you, it all up. Are you summoning demons? Can I watch? <laughs> or as described by um, Esdegor as, oh, lumbering, bawling idiot. <laughs> yep, that's a PC. Yeah, oh, I, I love I love the way that uh, Esdegor reacts to him. It's just uh, <laughs> the first thing that Esdegor says to Ralabarvus as he turns over is, may the ordeal of demons bemire you from heel to crown. <laughs> Oh, that's just fabulous. The one thing, admittedly, that does make me think that uh, Ralabavuz is not a particularly good PC is that he does allow the sorcerer to go into one huge monologue. I would have shot him four or five words in. It would have been done. He would have had a yes on him. It's all fine. But he stands there and listens to this huge, huge rant. So the, the sorcerer, Esdegor, who is really not happy about all this, he, he looks at Ralabavuz and... He puts the, the gears on him. Hearken then to your gears, O Ralabar Vuz, he fulminated. 
For this is the Gears, that you must cast aside all your weapons and go unarmed into the dens of the Vormies, and fighting barehanded against the Vormies and against their females and their young, you must win to that secret cave in the bowels of Vormithadreth, beyond the dens, wherein abides from eldermost eons the god Sarthogua. You shall know Sarthogua by his great girth, and his bat-like furriness, and the look of a sleepy black toad, which he has eternally. He will rise not from his place, even in the ravening of hunger, but will wait in divine slothfulness for the sacrifice. And going close to Lord Sarthogia, you must say to him, I am the blood-offering sent by the sorcerer Esdegor. Then, if it be his pleasure, Sarthogia will avail himself of the offering." I would have got to, for this is the gears, twang, that would be it. (laughs) So, folks, this is gears number one. And I find it a bit difficult to feel sympathetic for Relabarthos. All right, it was just dumb luck that he stumbled across this sorcerer. But on the other hand, he and a group of of heavily armed large men had been going out into these mountains hunting intelligent creatures. So, yeah, I I, I don't know. I I feel like he has earned his fate. So in today's society, he'd be that dentist who went out and shot Cecil the Lion, right? He would. Who deserves at least seven gears on him. Now we get a scene which reminded me of Mel Gibson in Beyond the Thunderdome. When he goes into the Thunderdome and they like surrender your weapons and he starts like getting out the pistol, the second <laughs> pistol, the knife, the other knife, the knife out of his boot, the, you know, the shotgun out of his... Yeah, like all these weapons. And Ralabar Vuz, under this gears, has to surrender all his weapons and we get a massive list of all the, all the, all the armaments that he has to put down. But he is allowed to keep his armour. That's about it, right? So all yeah. this list of all these weapons and stuff we had earlier, no further place in the story. Yeah, yeah, and he's separated from his men as well, so it's just him, just his armour. But on the other hand, he does have an Archaeopteryx following him now. So if that was a D&D type party, you got your, your role-playing group all sat round, the snacks were on the table. First thing, one of them sort of says, OK, well, I'm going to sneak up the cliff. Oh, you see this wizard, he puts a gears on you. And now... For the rest of the three hours that you're sat around the table, everybody else is eating and looking at magazines while the one player gets to go into the mountain and we have to do this whole big story. But it's even worse than that. A, that poor player has just lost all his equipment that he's probably worked campaigns to get. Like, I fought through two dragons to get that bloody sword, uh, only to have it left on top of a mountain and the GM narrate every single thing happening to him because he has no interaction in what happens. Yeah, Clark Ashton Smith is a shitty GM. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I mentioned the Archaeopteryx a moment ago, so the Sorcerer Esdegor has got this familiar, which uh, is an Archaeopteryx. Is that like a kind of dinosaur parrot? I mean, what is it? Pretty much. So it's the, <laughs> the missing link between dinosaurs and birds. Yeah, the, this... Uh, and it can talk, right? It can talk. Uh, no, it doesn't yes, talk. Actually, no, it doesn't. It just follows him around and directs him and stuff like that. Oh, okay, that think... was just in my head then. Uh, echo is better than... however you pronounce his name I could have sworn it talked do you you often hear archaeopteryx talking to you Paul Uh, I I don't want to go into that (laughs) (laughs) but yes this particular archaeopteryx rejoices in the name of Raftontis he now serves as Ralabar Vuz's guide into the underworld so he follows Raftontis into the caves and he is assaulted by the Vormis which he has to fight off 
barehanded. Now, I know what you said about Smith earlier, but I'm afraid he's no Robert Howard when it comes to combat scenes. I've found this a bit like lacking, really. In fact, I had to kind of look twice to realise there was actually combat going on. <laughs> exactly uh, the way I like it. Yeah, yeah, this is a very Matt Sanderson story. There is virtually no combat in this story. He meets lots of monsters, but, you know, we'll come to this. But yes, fighting the Vormis, they do appear to be, you know, from the description, they just seem to be biting his ankles and, and hitting him in the knees. And even then, when they try and throw stuff down, the bird gets in the way and they don't want to hit the bird. So, like I said, he's effectively floating armour. It's like a shield above him that, oh, we, we don't want to hit that. That's, that's a nice birdie. But yeah, Ralabavuz just goes in there and with his mailed fist starts hitting women and children, just pummeling them into bloody pulp. There's a description of you know teeth getting caught in his armour and pulled out and stuff like that, and just leaving this trail of little twitching bodies behind him. I mean, this is a fairly dark scene, but... I, I don't necessarily want to call it a comedic story, but there are you know, a number of comedic beats in it, and there's there's certainly a lot of irony and downright farce. And sometimes the comedy is a bit unintentional because there, you know, there there's a line of description here which just I I don't know appealed to the twelve year old boy in me, which is these low brutal savages fringing the dark mouths of the dens with their repulsive faces and members, <laughs> and I, I just I just pictured him yeah Ralabarvus running this gauntlet. Of Vormis cock on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> but he enters a cave with a potpourri or potpourri of evil smells. I mean, that is potpourri. That is basically potpourri, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I think this is coming from the scent of Sathogra, isn't it? And all his, his, his minions. So he makes his way to the, the cave as, as uh, directed by the Gears to Sathogra and offers himself to Sathogwa as a blood sacrifice. And I love the description there of Sathogwa sort of slowly waking up as this happens, and, you know, through his heavy-lidded eyes, this eye, this light just oozing out from his eyes. It's just such a wonderfully alien touch. When, effectively, the god turns around and says, I'm full, bugger off. <laughs> You've got the impression of this really sleepy god. When the hell does a god talk to the PCs and say, I'm full? Oh, yeah, this <laughs> would never happen in a Call of Cthulhu scenario. He turns up, I'm the blood sacrifice, he sort of says unwillingly, you know, commanded to do so. And and Sathogra, yeah, he says, oh, you know, I had a blood sacrifice earlier on, you know, I can't have another one right but, now. But it's Wafertin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says, you know what, I, I don't really want you. Why don't you go and see out that knacker? And it's number two. Yeah, so we, we start this Gears relay race at this stage. So, yeah, Rallabarvus gets a fresh Gears placed on him and immediately buggers off to try to find the Spider God at Lachnatcher. There's a hint as he's walking about how vast this underworld is, that as he's walking through tunnels and going through caves that even the walls are so far away you can't see them through the darkness, it does even imply that there are oceans down here. Because over the edge of yeah. the cliffs, he can hear the, um, this underground sea washing and bubbling below uh, beneath him. Well, the actual description is, yes, the way steepened more and more, and it ran through chambers that were too vast for the searching of sight, and along precipices that fell sheer for an unknown distance to the black, sluggish form and somnolent murmur of underworld seas. Yeah, This is a big mountain! A really big one. Four craters, Matt. Four, Four craters. Yeah. You don't get seas until you get at least three craters. Uh. So we get down to the bizarre spider god, Atlak Natcha. And Atlak Natcha is 
busy spinning the web. And, you know, it's going to take him all of eternity to spin this web. You know, he hasn't got time to be dealing with uh, Ralabarvus. Well, more importantly, Ralabarvus is wearing armour, and Natlatch naturally looks at this and sort of says, Oh, I can't be arsed getting you out of all that. You know, I want to eat you, but it's going to be fiddly, so bugger off. <laughs> And the conversation, I mean, I, you know, I paraphrased it slightly there, but it isn't far off. That. <laughs> no, that's pretty much what he says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I know someone who might want. You go and speak to this uh, anti-human, I love the word anti-human, yes. um, anti-human sorcerer, how on door. He might find a use for you. <laughs> Guess number three. But before we move on to that, that, that Gears, I, again, there is this conversation. Ralabarvus is wandering around the underworld, talking to all these gods, having I mean, not quite normal conversations with them, but conversing with them on a human level. This is actually one of the things about the story that delighted me. It reminded me an awful lot of uh, William Browning Spencer's fantastic novel, Resume with Monsters, where you've got a a probably very delusional uh, protagonist who at a couple of points ends up having conversations with, with, uh, with Azathoth. And, you know, that's done much more for explicit comic effect, though in a very kind of dark, twisted way. Yeah, it's the absurdity of the whole thing that I think transforms what is actually potentially a fairly dull, repetitive story into something that is at least amusing. Yeah, it's hard to reconcile this with Lovecraft's work, I find, because this is much lighter in tone. And I just can't imagine these kind of events happening in a, in a Lovecraft story. Ah, you see, this is one of the things I was thinking about when I was reading this. I could. Yeah? This is the world beyond Rats in the Walls. This is what the, potentially they would have found if they descended further down that bone-strewn tunnel. You think? I, I, I feel the Rats in the Walls, that realm beneath, would be much more, I don't know, much more sinister and threatening. This all feels more like a weird D&D adventure. I don't know, it's more at once more light-hearted and sort of more fantastical. And also on a more human level. I mean, that's the thing about the gods and entities and so on in Lovecraft stories, that on the whole, they are very alien. The gods, as portrayed here, have human motivations and frustrations. That whole thing, of, you know, with that latch nature basically saying, I don't want to be bothered with doing all this, sounds like an, an irritable old man. So he makes his way to Hauandor, who is sat on an impossibly high five-pillared seat. It, is this, this rather enigmatic humanoid figure sat on this, this throne? And with walls that have got all these demonic faces and forms just twisting in the stone as well. And by this stage in the story, I'm kind of thinking, he's not going to want him either, is he? <laughs> <laughs> kind of see where this is going. Seven Gearses. This is the third one. And yeah, uh, Heondor basically looks at Ralabarvus and just can't work out what the hell to do with him. I mean, you know, he's got all these hungry demons in his walls and, you know, maybe, you know, Ralabarvus could be fed to them, but yeah, it's only one person he's not going to go very far. They'd each get a fingernail or something of that size. Yeah. It's it's a wonderfully descriptive passage that details his palace and this subterranean ghost-haunted lair that he has. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, in the end, 
He just does the same thing as everyone else and says, "Nah, don't want you. Bugger off. You're not but, big enough. You won't feed my. You won't feed my hungry hordes." But in this case, he decides, "Oh, hang on. There's serpent people down below. Serpent people, you know, do all sorts of strange experiments with uh, with living people and extract ingredients or you know, to to use in their chemical concoctions. And you know, maybe they can use you as raw materials." Yeah, he, he does say it's like, "Oh, they're my allies. They might get me some brownie points with them. Go see them." Yes, number four. This big complex of, of caves, I very much picture them in my mind as mostly kind of natural, kind of rough caves, not really man-made or made by hand. But it is a vast complex, and there are various realms within all these this network of caves. So there's the, the serpent people's bit, there's Sathogua's bit, there's... This, this must be a massive place. I, I believe the technical term is mega-dungeon. Except he has no encounters along the way, so it's just lots of moving through corridors. Oh, it's another cave. Well, I don't know. He has some encounters later on. Oh, yeah, when he gets right to the bottom. But, yeah, that's each a long one of, way down. Each one of these could be a module on their own, couldn't they? Hmm. Well, apart from the fact they're resolved in about three paragraphs. Yeah. You turn up wearing armour, being saying you're sent by the person before you. Oh, I don't need you. So he makes his way down to the serpent people to see if they can find a use for the chemical ingredients in his body. Hey! <laughs> Any use for me? And they, this is the worst of the lot because they just bloody ignore him. There are certain people wandering around, you know, conducting experiments, playing with weird bits of technology. And every time he goes up saying, I'm here to give you my chemicals, you know, yeah, here, vivisect me. And they just blank him. And eventually, eventually he manages to get the attention of one of them. Uh, uh, the, the, the thing that really goes is the twist in the, uh, the twisting the knife here is that when they wheel out another specimen, it's like, yeah, he's got a bigger member than you. Yeah. <laughs> he, was a, he, was be- he was a better specimen. Yeah, they got him in a jar. Like this, this other, well, I guess human specimen. But also adding insult to injury. I mean, they're not only rolling out these specimens and showing them to Relabavus, but they start giving him lectures on comparative biology and so on. And I, I just sort of picture this poor man going down there uh, as if you know he hasn't been through enough, just standing there while these really boring serpent people drone on, yeah. know, giving all these technical terms and you know, pointing out bits of anatomy and maybe drawing diagrams and charts and stuff like that, explaining exactly why he is an unfit specimen. This one work in D&D. I mean, there's no humiliation mechanic. You need a game where, you know, Relabarvuz's player needs to be kind of crossing off some sort of pride stat or something, self-worth, <laughs> just going down. Yeah, it's more my life with Master than D&D. Oh my god, it is. <laughs> Especially, he's not taken any, not have taken any major apparent sand hits from seeing any of the things that he's wandered past. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. We may get back to that in the gaming section. So the serpent people send him to the cavern of the archetypes. But the way they do this is interesting because, you know, he's had all these gearses placed on him so far. But in this case, one of the serpent people hypnotises him. And, you know, obviously because they don't believe in magic, uh, they're doing this all very scientifically. And so they do it through hypnosis. But then he explains, oh, yeah, it's the same thing as a gears. Yeah, in the rule book, <laughs> it says hypnosis in brackets, see gears. Yeah. Yeah. We are scientists, not sorcerers. <laughs> so we get... Gears number five. And by this point, I'm thinking anybody out there that's a parent is going to know the book. I wrote to the zoo. I wrote to the zoo to send me a pet and they sent me and you turn the page. There's a picture of an elephant. An elephant. But he was too big. So we sent him back. (laughs) I wrote to the zoo to send me a 
And he turned the page, giraffe, but he was too big, so we sent him back. <laughs> you know, it's like, I wrote to the zoo to send me Sathogwa, but he was too full, so I sent him back. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote to the zoo to send me Atlat Nacha. He was too, too busy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like that. It's like every, I'm sure you can make a children's book of this. <laughs> oh, but we should have put, pitched that to Littlest Lovecraft, or in this case, Littlest Clark Ashton Smith. Well, they do, there's our own yeah. Kickstarter there, Matt. Yeah. Oh, dear God. I wrote to Ralabarvus. <laughs> but anyway, Ralabarvus heads down further into this hot and steamy primordial cavern filled with thick and semi-aqueous light. I love that description. And this, even to someone from this prehistoric realm, seems primitive. It's full of vegetation. Uh, there are creatures wandering around, and he is almost immediately attacked by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, well... Yeah, but Clark, Ash Clark Ashton Smith ups the, the weirdness here. Yes. Our, our protagonist is eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And now I'm picturing, you know, that, that big green dinosaur from Toy Story. <laughs> but but it's, not, it's not a solid one. It's kind of like ghostly. So it's made, kind of made half of smoke. real. Yeah. It does manage to eat it, but he, he falls out of its stomach. And it tries to eat him several times, and he just keeps falling out, which I think is a really cool image. <laughs> you can imagine the dinosaur getting really like, frustrated. You're too solid. Yeah. And, and there are other smoky dinosaurs wandering around this place. Uh, he, he describes a whole variety of them, and uh, a few of them you know, try to get a bit hostile with him, but again, you know, there is nothing physically they can do to him. And eventually these two figures, which are described as being like large people, come out. And again, they are made of this smoky substance. As it's uh, the archetypal man and woman. Yeah, I mean, this is like... I, the way I was seeing it is it's almost like, um, you know, the idea of platonic ideals. The, the, you know, this is the cavern where the, the platonic ideals for all things in the rest of the world live. And, of course... Being the platonic ideals, they look at Relabarvus and think, yeah, you're a bit debased and squalid. We don't want you. Yeah, look at that moustache. That's awful. But we know who would like you. Perhaps. Off you go. Have a word with Abhoth. Yeah, because, well, it's worse than that. I mean, again, this goes into the humiliation aspect of it. You know, they look at him and they think, yeah, you look like one of his, the source of all uncleanliness and corruption and so on. Yeah, you must have come from him. Why don't you bugger off back where you came from? So we have Gears number six. So he moves to another cavern on the same level. And there are things there. He encounters things en route. I mean, we were talking about encounters earlier. There he encounters ungodly and disgusting creatures, which he soon began to meet. There were things that he could only liken to monstrous one-legged toads, and immense myriad-tailed worms, and miscreated lizards. They came flopping or crawling through the gloom in a ceaseless procession. And there was no end to the loathsome morphologic variations which they displayed. I didn't really get past one-legged toads. <laughs> what the hell? What what are they? Uh, and, and, and later on where it's just the legs and arms and heads rolling around without rests of bodies. But, but there's also something fantastic about the use of the word flopping. <laughs> that, that you know, if you're describing the movement of a creature and you use the word flopping, it just it just paints a picture. It paints a picture, but not a particularly threatening one. Flopping one-legged toads. I don't know. Ribbit. Very odd. 
And the source of all these creatures is Abhoth, a stinking grey pool of sludge and offal. Mm. Almost like a kind of shoggoth that hasn't bathed for a long time, because it does describe how bits of it come off and then just a mouth comes up and bite and then eats it. Yeah, he is described as being the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination. He just spawns these hideous little creatures out of him. They, they, sometimes they just swim around in his flesh, sometimes they get free and flop around outside, and as they do so, they grow and move around the caverns. And to add humiliation to humiliation on Ralabarvu's, Aboth looks at him and judges that He's too biologically different and may interfere with Aboth's indigestion. You may give me the shits. I'm not eating you. <laughs> what the hell? There's all this filth and, and weird things. And, in, you know, Ralabar Vuz, you can't deal with him. You know, he's encountered what is sounds like a sentient cesspit. <laughs> this thing just says, oh, no, no, you look a bit icky to me, mate. <laughs> so guess what he does? Does it involve a gears, Paul? A seventh one. Ding, ding. Ooh, that this, must mean we're getting close to the end. I think, you know what? I think it might. Although the, the seventh one is a little bit different from the others in that he actually has a degree of free will now. Yeah. Well, he's sent to seek the outer world. Which, yeah, Abhoth thinks is the most repellent, horrible place he can think of. The, and this is obviously where Ralabar Vuz needs to be sent as something so abominable. And, of course, it's where Ralabar Vuz came from in the first place. So, he's right. <laughs> now, we said Clark Ashton Smith would make a pretty poor DM earlier, and never more than what's about to happen. <laughs> this, is, this is a very good example. So, he follows the parrot dinosaur bird thing, um, Raftontis, through the uh, through the many caves, and we kind of get a, a montage scene of him sort of going past all the well, things that he's encountered. Yeah, no, actually, I think no, you're missing no, he, something even more horrific. Yeah, well, they get a shortcut. Actually, they they get to bypass most of them. We get reference to some of those things. Though. Yeah, well, yeah. no, we get reference to the fact that they bypass them. Oh, okay. There, there yeah, was yeah. this, yeah, this shorter quick, route. Yeah, yeah. But you're also missing again the more implied horror here. That after he's travelled God knows how long throughout this huge subterranean mega dungeon. He finally curls up in a crevice and goes to sleep, only to be woken by the demon parrot bird thing holding a fish in its mouth for him to eat. <laughs> what? Where the hell did he get a fish down there? Even in the oceans. You said about oceans earlier. Yeah, but that's a long oh, way back. I don't no, remember I'm... this fish. You're making this up. No, I, I, I'm sure this was a little chocolate fish shat out by Aboth. <laughs> or it's when a track fish went right for once <laughs> it happened he, 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 even archaeopteryxes are casting it now paul it's what? too late I, I okay okay so he gets a fish big deal <laughs> <laughs> and he makes his way towards the exit he's kind of found the, the the main stairway out of the dungeon now i don't know but it's kind of like a shortcut like scott said so it's just, it's, yeah. it has an exit sign saying this way yeah, yeah. Ch chasm this way yeah, I guess the DM doesn't want to go through all that other stuff again, so there's like, oh, there's a secret door and you find your way. Actually, this is a lot like playing some of the Elder Scrolls games. If you ever play things like Skyrim, you get these huge dungeons that you have to go down and fight your way down through, and they're really complex. And then you get to the end and you find a secret door that basically just leads you outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just what this is like. As he's made his way out, he's been plagued by Aboth's spawn all the way through. And as they've been getting further away from Aboth, they've been getting larger. I mean, they're, they're described as being about the same size as bears now. And that's crossing the chasm on sort of like a web bridge? 
Yeah, there are webs spanning the chasm. Ralabarvus is getting ready to cross there, but there is this huge slot-like thing crawling ahead of him. And there's a load of little monsters coming up behind him oh, as well, right? So heels, he's, he's yeah. kind of like, oh, damn it, I've got to get across this this web bridge. So he goes for it. The DM asks for a roll. He fails it. Rocks fall. Everyone dies. Yep. And oh, no, he the... doesn't even fall to that. We don't even know if he dies. He just falls. Oh, come yes, on, he good. dies, right? <laughs> well, He's got it, a... it does mention when he crossed, uh, when he crossed at that Natchez Bridge the first time that it's almost these dragon things swirling in the darkness beneath him. Maybe he did finally end up being someone's dinner. Or maybe they just looked at him and went, nah, and he just keeps on falling. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but as the last line says, this, unfortunately, was a contingency that had not been provided against by the terms of the seventh gears. So is there some sort of deep moral story to be learnt from this? Um, don't hunt Vormies. Don't go to Mount the Mithadreth. Don't interrupt wizards when they're doing summonings. Don't play in Clark Ashton Smith's D&D modules. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> don't, and don't allow them to put the gears on you in an overly long monologue. All right, that is the, that is the moral of the story. Yeah. Matt's nailed it there. Yeah. I feel justified every time I shoot a motherfucking sorcerer halfway through their speech. <laughs> <laughs> don't let them speak. Shoot them first. But as as we mentioned earlier, I mean, there are problems with this story. And there's a lot of fun description and it's comedic, it's light in touch. It introduces lots of cool monsters and, and places and so on. The structure of it, it is like a shaggy dog story. It feels like a joke almost with no punchline. Yeah, it, it really does. Because you get to the end, he falls in the chasm and he's dead. And you're like, okay, why, what, where, what was all this about? yeah. If Smith was going for irony at the end, he could have gone for something else, you know, like, you know, maybe he stumbles out and then interrupts his, you know, the, the, uh, the sorcerer when he's in the midst of another summoning and it's sort of, oh, no, not you again. Right, back down you go. And, I, yeah. I would have probably had it more that he turns up, he's coming out of the um, out of a tunnel, um, sees these figures silhouetted against the dark as his, twen- uh, as his six and 20 men go, kill the for me! <laughs> <laughs> yep. But, yeah, in the end, falling down into the chasm, well, it ends the story, but it feels very anticlimactic after that, you know, comparatively long build-up. Yeah, it's like playing one of those make-your-own-adventure-fight-in-fantasy books where you've been playing it for hours and then you just choose the wrong option and you die. And it's like, oh, God, I've got to start again. The other really important thing about that ending is what is it that provides the ultimate downfall of Ralabies of Ooze? It's a sloth. Oh. <laughs> this is why yeah, it you, is. Yeah, this yeah. is why you didn't like the story because it's filled with with dangerous sloths and there's an archaeopteryx casting a trapped fish. And this is punching all your buttons, Paul. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the if shaking head of despair. I didn't like the story before. I certainly don't like it now. <laughs> yeah. No, I do kind of enjoy it actually. Although we've kind of talked about it in great depth, it is a relatively short story. It's, it's a long one for Smith. Really? I, um, yeah. I, Smith's stories tend to be fairly short, punchy, little oh, prose right. poem things revolving around you know one incident or one scene, really. And this is, uh, this is really quite expansive for Smith. And now, inevitably, we look at what we can steal for our games. I do kind of wish sometimes that I would have an investigator that has a gears put on him at the start that says fight the mythos because it seems every time you go and fight the mythos under that gears or like Ralabarvuz does is go to see Sothogwe. Don't take a sand hit every time you see whatever it is you go up to see. Yeah. Well, maybe he did. I mean, we don't know, do we? 
He might have taken a sun the, hit. The, the only time it feels like he ever has any kind of weird mental problem is that, oh, that voice that was speaking, oh, that was actually mine. That's it! There's nothing else. It's not like there are fear, re- repulsion, terror, anything. Like mo- most people go absolutely batshit crazy when they see Sathogwa. He just says, "I'm here. I'm here Hold for the meal." He does spend all this time in these dark tunnels and sees all these really weird things. He thinks he's eaten by dinosaurs made of smoke. It are these just delusions? It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't imply they were. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Doesn't really detail his reactions at all. It's just he's a fairly passive player in this. I'd be asleep if I was the one being just sat there having the GM talk to me all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so is this an object lesson in how not to run the game? Well, I think it's an object lesson in how to run a very different kind of game. Because I obviously there are a lot of entities in this that we associate with Call of Cthulhu, but this is very much not a Call of Cthulhu-style game, if we look at it as a game. This is much more of a sword and sorcery fantasy. Without, and, without swords? Yeah, well, no, there are swords, he just... He just drops them right at the start. Uh, But I think, you know, because it's a different genre, that the sanity side of things becomes a lot less important. You know, Relabar Vuz and, you know, his compatriots exist in a world where things like this happen, where they're commonplace. This isn't like investigators in our world suddenly encountering this alien intrusion that has no place being here, and that they can't wrap their minds around. You know, when it comes to the Vormies, hell, they've gone out hunting them, so they, they know all about them, they've obviously done some research on them, they know that they're a natural part of this world, so of course there's going to be no sand loss there. There are hardier folk in Hyperborea. And we see the wizard as well. I mean, he's a powerful wizard and he is able to just, you know, snap his fingers pretty much. And this powerful fighter, Ralabar Vuz, is immediately under his spell. And we see similar things in some of the Conan stories. You know, some of these wizards are like really, really awesome and powerful. Um, So, as you say, I think it is very much more of a, a swords and sorcery type story and maybe sanity doesn't play so much in that. But what does reflect into role playing, I think, is... And a more serious aspect of how much you can take away a player's agency or volition over what their character is doing. Because mm. in this story, if Ralabavuz was a player character and an NPC cast this spell on him and he just has to go through all these experiences with no choice of what he does... But I mean, I've certainly seen D&D scenarios before, maybe not uh, published ones, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, where player characters are placed under geases as a sort of plot device, just basically to spur them into a particular kind of action. And I suppose the difference between the D&D approach, or this, this story's approach to a geese, and outright mind control, is that you're given a particular thing you have to do, but you have your own volition in how you approach it. It's not like you're a puppet at every stage and, you know, you, 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 you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do the other. It's, this is your goal, you have to accomplish this in any way that you see fit. I'd say by the time the seventh gears is put on him that, yes, that's the case. But definitely in the first instance, it does describe how, kind of, I think probably the only time he does take a sand hit is when it's, I couldn't control myself, I just took off my armour, or took took off all my weaponry, as that he felt his motions were very much not his. Yes, but after that, you know, that that was an explicit part of the gears, but once that's done, then, you know, he has freedom of action and... Well, not even his walking, it's that even then, it's the initial part of him, it's like he starts walking off in a particular direction and can't control his feet. Yeah. Mm. So he is just there for the ride for the first part of it. 
But I suppose if I were doing something like this as a GM or a player in a game, I wouldn't necessarily have the same compunction about putting a gears on a, a character to sort of say, you must achieve this objective, and then leaving the player to get on with it. But, um, yeah, if it's just playing mind control, then, you know, as a player, that just sucks. I think I'd be tempted to have some sort of option of choice in there. So you have to achieve this objective. The gears is upon you. You feel compelled to do this thing, but you can choose not to do it. But something kind of bad starts happening to you. You know, your skin starts flaking off or, um, you know, your your sanity starts to go down a point every day. Something, some mechanical or sort of colour in there that that almost kind of compels you to follow it, but gives you the option not to. So maybe you could decide not to. You suffer from it, but maybe whilst you're suffering, you can try and find a way out of it or a way to attack the person that put the gears upon you. Something like that, that gives the player the out if they want to seek that. Yeah, the, the only time I would explicitly use a this PC does this is if someone's using the dominate spell because even then it is one round that you are compelled to do one action. Yes. That's about the limit yeah. of what I will ever do that. Yeah, I think for short term, I think that that works really well because it is just like one round, you know, you're, you're forced to pick up the gun and shoot one of your friends or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's not really telling the player how to act for a prolonged section of the game. Which I think is where the, where the problem perhaps yes. lies. Yes. And equally, when a player casts a spell or some such on another player, or even just uses the persuade skill, and I've seen this debated a lot, mm-hmm. should I be able to use social interaction roles to compel another player to act in a certain way? How do we feel about that? Yeah, I, I really dislike that. Um, anything that basically takes away the ability for another player to choose what they do then I just say, no, those skills are just for NPCs. Yeah, same here. I'd never allow a player to control the actions of another player character just through a skill role like that. I mean, that's not fun for anyone. I've seen some players actually welcome that and uh, allow that dice roll to sort of determine how they decide to act. Well, I suppose that the person who's being influenced you know, is using that as a determinator themselves, then it's the player's choice and that's fine. Yeah. But it's you know, if player A says, you know, I want to stop player B doing this or I want to make player B do this, and player B isn't happy about that, then no. No, I mean, that's, that, that, that is not functional play. Another aspect of this story that interests me from a gaming perspective is how unimportant combat is. You, you've got a couple of fight scenes. So you've got that, that initial one where he's going in and punching the hell out of the Vormies. You've got one later on where Relabavus and the Archaeopteryx are fighting off a few of the spawn of Aboth, which are just basically irritating them. Uh, oh, of course, you've got the bit with being eaten by the T-Rex and so on. But at no point there is Relabavus really in danger. And it wouldn't be interesting to the outcome of the story if he were in mortal danger. I mean, can you imagine if this were a game and you had all this set up and, you know, he got into that initial fight with the Vormies and, you know, he fumbled, one of them critted and, you know, he just bled out there in the doorway before he even got into the cavern. You you do mean, like, if he fell off the web, we don't know what else was going to happen after he got to the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, this feels just like that, actually, Scott. Um, But but I think the, the thing in the story is... As you say, combat doesn't really feel very important in this story, but I think the, the way it's portrayed in the story, they don't feel like action scenes to me, as they do in the hands of some authors like Robert E. Howard. Yeah. You know, we don't have 
you know, I don't know, flashing steel and, and the th- cut and thrust of combat described. It's just a by the by almost. It's colour. And I think if I were running a game like this and trying to have this particular outcome, that's the way I'd do it. I, you know, let's say that initial fight with the Vormies, instead of it being a round-by-round combat, you know, I'd just sort of say, right, let's let's just see how smoothly this goes for you, whether you get banged up on the way in or whether you, know, you, you, you just mow your way through them. And I'd just abstract that to one single round of combat rolls. Yeah, uh, I think it would almost be setting stakes there um, for yeah. something, but the stakes wouldn't be that your character dies. No. It's perhaps that, you know, I don't know, they rip your armour off and you're left naked and cut and bruised or something, or they take you captive, maybe, something like that. Yeah. This is exactly the combat I love. (laughs) (laughs) Short, sweet, and moderately pointless. But who would run a game like this going into what you effectively described as a mega dungeon, Scott, and not think about having combat in it? Well, I think this is very much down to deciding ahead of time what the game is about. Because, just because something feels like a D&D game doesn't necessarily mean it has to play like a D&D game. And similarly, just because you are playing Call of Cthulhu doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do things the way you've done in every other Call of Cthulhu game. You know, if you want to take a shortcut, if you want to sort of make one aspect of it unimportant, if you want to make, you know, sanity not an important aspect of it or combat not an important aspect of it, you know, tailor that to the game up front. You know, one thing we didn't discuss with this story, the number of times you fell asleep reading it, Matt. Uh Mm. Uh-huh. Can you tell us? There should be some sort of rating system uh, (laughs) that that appears on the back of, like, videos and uh, books that that relates to, you know, the number of times you fell asleep in it. The sleep sleep counter. Yeah, Yeah. the SSC, the Sanderson sleep count. (laughs) So what's the SSC rating for this story? I think... It's going to be technically one, because I started reading it many, many years ago and never finished it. Um, I started it and got to up to a point where they just got to the Vor- um, the Vormis Caves. So I hadn't even uh, had the mention about the Tender of Smoke, etc. That's the point where I think I had to put it down for some reason. Either I fell asleep or it was late night or whatever. But then this time, I read it in a whole sitting. Wow. Basically, that whole sitting took nearly two and a half hours, but I read it in, t- read it in one go. The stars are right. I'm pretty sure <laughs> they should be like, they should rewrite it with the eighth gears. I, I send you Rallabarboos to Matt Sanderson. And you, your journey's all the way to Matt Sanderson's <laughs> house, and Matt's there in his chair. Ah, oh, yes, Mr. Rallabarboos. Oh, I see. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, that, that would have been almost an anticlimactic ending. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see, I was just worried that you weren't going to be able to read this story because the contrast on your book was set wrong. <laughs> You're not going to live that it's, one down, Matt. It is a fairly big print in the book I've got. <laughs> and now it's time for... Ask Jackson. But once again, we're going to ask him to give us guidance on a listener's question. We are the earthly vessels of Jackson Elias, as we have explained before, and he does speak through us, sometimes at really inappropriate moments. And this week's letter to Jackson is from our good friend Frank Delventhal. And it reads, Dear Mr Elias, 
As a faithful listener to your wisdom, I do hope that you can help me figure out the following dilemma. My partner and I were investigating near an old graveyard. Well, there's a mistake straight off the bat. <laughs> there was this crypt that was opened, and we, as we approached, some figures were running away in, in a more hopping movement than actually running. We looked into the crypt and found an open grave. In it lay a corpse that was holding a thick leather-bound book. As I was trying to get it out of the hands of the long time ago deceased, my friend wanted to look outside. As I got the book out of the crypt, I heard screams in a nearby distance. I went in that direction, but I just found lots of blood and the ripped-off wristwatch of my partner. I decided to drive home to our detective agency office. What shall I do now? Grab a shotgun and go back there again? Call the police? Heathen. Change the door sign from Bainsworth and partner to just Bainsworth? And shall I get new straps for the wristwatch? It would be a shame to lose a perfectly good watch, wouldn't it? Yours, Mr. Bainsworth. Well, that's what happens when you catch Randolph Carter in the middle of doing something like that. <laughs> he does get around, doesn't he? Well, Mr. Bainsworth, one thing I would advise would be if you're ever stuck in a game for what to do, you don't know what to do, you've got this mythos tome, as we talked about with Clark Ashton Smith, you know, you can look at his stories for inspiration. Well, just remember that advice. Just open up the tome, start reading. The inspiration will come from, you know, the, the sanity roll. As long as you fail it, then you will get some, you know, insane inspiration and the keeper will give you some direction on what to do. It will just spring into your mind. I mean, it might involve ripping off your clothes and running down the, the high street. But, you know, that's action is better than inaction. And, and who amongst us hasn't done that at some stage? And also, I, before you spend any money getting your sign redone, obviously the first thing you should do, and I know I say this almost every time a question is asked, the first thing you should do is investigate the opportunities opened up to you by necromancy. I, there is no reason why your partner has to you know, stay you know, a silent partner. All right, from what you said, you don't necessarily have his corpse, but you've got a, a totemic item, you've got some of his blood. I mean, people have raised spirits with a lot less than that. You could bind him into some kind of, you know, simulacrum. You could get him to possess another body, or, or perhaps just have a spirit bottle on your desk, and when you need his advice, pull the cork out. Bane's with them, partner deceased. <laughs> so there's, a <laughs> there's a TV series and that, isn't there? <laughs> I was going to say, your partner goes around in a white suit and looks a bit like Kenneth Cope. <laughs> you know, it occurs to me, Scott, Jackson is always banging on about necromancy. He is. You know, is, he, is he trying to give us hints? I think he's trying to hint. You know, and, and yeah. we've got Matt here as well. I think he's trying to hint that we should organise a Kickstarter <laughs> for a necromantic ritual to, to, you know, to raise his spirit back to life. I think we're late. There was the Cthulhu talking board that was on Kickstarter. I've no, no, but I mean an actual, you know, yeah. manifestation. I, I think you're onto something there, Paul. Yeah, you know, Jackson is is whispering in my ear, just saying yes, yeah, yeah. You know. Is he I, Scott? Well, actually, actually, what he's saying is, if people can raise money to make fucking potato salad, <laughs> then he de he deserves a second shot at life. <laughs> so we're bringing Jackson back to life via the Kickstarter. But I want to know what the stretch goals are going to be. I, I think it's got to be some kind of new and upgraded physical form. I think if we reach a sufficient level, that we should actually build him a giant mecha. Yeah, the Super me Jackson. Yeah, Mecha Jackson. Or alternatively, <laughs> you could actually play the opening chapter of Masks of Nialothotep with Jackson Elias playing himself. Oh, <laughs> my brain. <laughs> it's all gone very meta. <laughs> 
And one final bit of advice uh, to you, particularly Frank, uh, from Jackson, which is you make reference to picking up a shotgun and going out there to deal with evil. Just try not to bend the bloody thing. They don't, they don't shoot if you bend the barrels into a U. But that, where, where's the Keeper's involuntary action material gone there? That would be perfect. He runs, into, <laughs> he runs up to find whatever it is he's been chasing and the barrel's pointing back on himself. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen the videos that explain what we're talking about, I shall try to remember to put them in the show notes. Mr. Delventhal is... I believe the technical term is terrifying. <laughs> or, or D6 damage bonus. <laughs> the, yes. thing, the things that man can do to metal is just... <laughs> and, and to decks of cards, as he demonstrated in our group chat that we had, we forgot to mention earlier, but we had a group chat with backers uh, a couple of weeks ago now on a Sunday yes. afternoon. My, myself and Matt had some technical issues, which <laughs> we'll, we'll just brush under the carpet right now. <laughs> Fucking um, windows. Yeah, Matt blames, yeah. I don't use Windows, well, Matt, so I can't use well, that you, excuse. You, you had lots of Windows updates, Matt, and then your internet connection... Yeah, I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, I, I, I really don't know. But I need to phone my provider, I think. Yeah. <laughs> or or yeah, something. Ju- just don't set up a Skype call with them, no. because they won't understand the thing you say. Like, was... your, your, your part in that, it was like conducting a seance talking to you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies to the backers for that but we had what we had about seven backers online yeah and um we we kind of chatted over some of the possible show ideas um yeah some people had some great yeah. ideas for for future shows yeah. and we got some feedback you know just shared some ideas and there were some ideas for the blasphemous tome as well yes yep and then frank bent things <laughs> yes he did and tore a deck of cards in half so it was quite an entertaining chat yeah yes it was we will look to organize another group chat at some time next year there are occasional things that we do just to get feedback from the backers i think next time what we'll do is we'll try and structure it such that we don't have too many people on the call so if we get demand from more than say half a dozen we'll break it down and do a couple of calls in sequence rather than trying to cram everybody on the same one that might be better and also matt and i will do our best to conquer our technical challenges well finally let's just double back and go over our final thoughts about the seven gears well it was a fun story there's quite a bit that one can find humorous and perhaps there's quite a bit in there that one can kind of uh, mock as well but alongside that there's some pretty cool actual material the thing it left me with more than anything else was a desire to play a Call of Cthulhu game, or just any game, that involves those particular deities played in that particular way. That, that, that sort of having conversations with Sathogur and Atlachnatcher. It was just... Yeah, it's, it's so different from the experience of playing normal Call of Cthulhu, I think it would be an absolute blast. I've got in mind an Ab- uh, a Salisa scenario or larger piece of work that involves Zaboth. So I think I might have to fit a conversation with him in there at some point. Well, where he talks about how disgusting humanity is. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it does, on a, on a more serious point, it does make me think that often there's a discussion about Call of Cthulhu as a game and how Lovecraftian it is. You know, people sort of might criticise it for being too pulpy or, you know, not really portraying the or emulating Lovecraft stories closely enough. Now, 
I would say that, you know, if you just look at Lovecraft stories, there's quite a lot of variation in tone and content in those. But, you know, you, you can kind of see a broad kind of overarching kind of Lovecraftian feel. But once you start taking elements from a story such as The Seven Gearses, how can you hope for that to have a Lovecraftian feel? So if you're yeah. taking that as your Call of Cthulhu, no, that's not going to feel like a Lovecrafting game, I don't think. No, it's a Smithian game. Yeah. By definition. Yeah. But the game, Call of Cthulhu, should that encompass all those things? And if it should, then it's not, you know, it doesn't have a, a, a singularly identifiable uh, tone that it's aiming for. Yeah, I think what you'd have to be careful of is having tonal shifts or, you know, really extreme tonal shifts within, say, the same campaign. If you'd spent the first few scenarios trying to build up a sense of dread and impending cosmic horror and these whole, you know, the, the, the whole idea of there being these entities beyond human comprehension that transcend time and space that could crush us like ants and aren't even aware of our existence and and then... You turn up and you meet South Ogre and he has a chat with you. That's just going to undermine the whole thing. On the other hand, you know, if you have a campaign where, you know, the first thing you do is meet South Ogre and you have a chat with him, then, you know, that sets up a very different kind of campaign. And it's not going to be necessarily going to be a bad campaign. It's just going to be a very particular kind of campaign. I think it also has to end with the finally going through his cavern and then saying, right, I'm hungry now. <laughs> So all in all, it was a fun story, and if you fancy reading it, then, as we've said before, it's all there on the Eldritch Dark website. Uh, it's only a few thousand words. Go along, read it, let us know what you think. Okay, well, that's it for this week. It's a geese good night from me. A geisha cheerio from me. And a plain old geese, you know, the ones that go honk honk. Farewell from me. You've got to stop goosing people, Matt. But it's so fun! <laughs> Blasphemous tomes.